hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years, from the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better, and it's the hardest Hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he can interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a, a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack, and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true. I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw 
Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a big thrill for me and I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that and I had to think of a name overnight and um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet when he got to W he said Wilder and I said that's the one I want and then for the first name it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the fr Look Homeward Angel, and the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him, and The Web and the Rock, and You Can't Go Home Again, it was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder, because there, Ely Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the Actors Studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching him a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld, to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels, they're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel, Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over that. Sing and dance right over it and get on to the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island. We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called him and I said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't <laughs> get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway, matinee, taking off my makeup, Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. (laughs) He said, you don't think I forgot, do you? (laughs) Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. But I can't just cast you. You got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the 
office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens, there's Mel. He says, come on in. Z, he called zero Z. This is Jean, Jean, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom, the accountant played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, in glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... Mark you have 48 seconds left. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the columns... 28 columns, seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. <laughs> what is that, a handkerchief? What? Nothing, that's nothing. There's nothing. Know. Why can't I see? My blanket! My blue blanket! Give me my blue blanket! Oh, no, 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 it's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, and the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal, and Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick, and I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what do, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, we, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Do it. And I meant it. He did mean it. And that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. 
Um, occupation. Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy. And it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon, an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. And you're listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was... Uh... March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two 
two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was an heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania? And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And I put an ending on it. Track 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now, you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor, on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> what hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part Two. Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want to, you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method acting. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. 
And, uh, and then he passed out, and Mel said, it's a sign from God. <laughs> he called me from the, s the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around. And there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, <laughs> and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something, and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well. And I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere. Not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing... Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound, uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. 
I like the show, but I don't like the business. And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up this like is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She was always a sucker for a big laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I'm the best audience. She is my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, It comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. (laughs) Or possibly in three years. But it does go away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute right here, now specifically, we're happy. Yeah, we're happy. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, that classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and 
the breath isn't quite so good, or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever. <laughs> you know, after two, three, four years of that, you start to think of, well, where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors, and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me, they don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song, and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray 
why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, H-I-O, maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we often talk about love and also marriage in our regular Marriage on the Mind series. And before both comes dating. And there was a column about dating that really caught our eye. A gentleman named Isaac Huss wrote a very honest piece entitled A Man's Insecurities in Dating. A perspective, by the way, that we rarely hear, as most men aren't willing to open up about their insecurities or deficiencies. But Isaac did exactly that in this column for Verily Magazine, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name's Isaac. Like many men, I find myself to be, at least from time to time, insecure about being in a relationship with a woman. What are my insecurities? I worry about how I sound when I sing in the shower. I worry that I volunteer too much info about myself. I worry that I'll hit somebody with my car on a date. But, most of all, I worry that I'll suck at love. It's hard for men to admit this stuff. We want to come across like we have it all figured out. Like we are strong enough for the both of us. But in reality, we're dealing with some things internally that inevitably affect our relationships. And... We typically would prefer that nobody know about it, least of all the women in our life. And all men, no matter how confident they appear, are dealing with this. The man you're with is not likely to ever tell you this stuff, but you and I, dear reader, aren't dating. And good can only come from better understanding men in your life and the sort of obstacles they might be dealing with, and by extension, you'd be dealing with. The truth is, my singing voice in the shower is the least of my insecurities when it comes to dating women. But I do worry that I'm not particularly good at choosing a partner, that I put too much emphasis on physical attraction, or a magical spark, if you will, or maybe that I'll allow the pendulum to swing too far the other way and find myself with someone I have plenty in common with but whom I'm not attracted to enough. This leads me to avoid commitment more often than I choose to admit. But then there are times when I'm confident in the woman I'm with that I'm worried about other things. Moving too fast into a relationship and scaring someone away. Or moving too slowly and losing someone. After pulling my friends... I discovered that there is a common underlying fear beneath all our shared concerns. What if I don't have what it takes? Most guys, if not all, struggle with the possibility that someday they simply won't be able to measure up to the challenges that they'll face in a committed relationship. For me, that can mean anything from not making enough money to not being loving or tender-hearted enough when my partner would need me to be. But perhaps the greatest anxiety in this regard is that she'll leave me. Or worse, she'll stay with me, but be miserable as a result. Either way, there's nothing I could do about it. Or so the narrative goes in my head. This anxiety, of course, comes from history. Especially for those of us who have been dumped before, without much of a reason beyond, quote, I'm just not that into you, unquote. Those past experiences can be like dark clouds hovering overhead. 
Sometimes it's hard to enjoy what's happening because you're afraid it'll all be over in an instant. My buddy Alex puts it this way. Quote, They'll say no one has ever been so fun, interesting, confident, and thoughtful, yet they want to end it. I'm thankful now that I have a girlfriend, three months strong, but I still face that demon from time to time, despite her being completely enamored by me, unquote. Your man is probably not expecting or even needing you to be his savior. In fact, I personally don't want a woman to think I need any special treatment. Frankly, just being aware that a man might have self-esteem issues or questions of self-worth or in his ability to hold up his end of the bargain is a great first step that will be illuminating and helpful in its own right. If a woman is patient and understanding when I make a mistake, that's huge for me. That doesn't mean she can't be mad when I slip up, nor does it mean I make all the mistakes. I just want to know that we're in this thing together, and that my mistakes or shortcomings aren't going to change my standing with her. That will go a long way in helping me feel confident in myself and our relationship, and that will help me be a better man for her. A wise man once said, Perfect love casts out all fear. In my experience, even beyond patience and understanding, the best cure for relationship anxiety is simply love. Resist the temptation to withhold affection or hold grudges against someone because that can really erode a sense of trust and companionship until it becomes a tug of war. Or worse, a competition of manipulation. If you sense that he feels inadequate, show him how much you love him. If you find him fretting about your future together, reassure him by your love. If you have a rough patch, when you've wondered if the spark has faded, fan the flames a little bit. Believe me, your efforts won't go unnoticed. And thank you for sharing that, Isaac. That's a confessional of a sort. Not many men would share it, but we all have it. I don't care if you're in the best marriage. On some level, you've got to worry. You don't know. You pray, you hope. Love and perfect love does cast off all fear, but it's the scariest of places. And thank you again, Isaac Huss, Verily Magazine, a man's insecurities in dating. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Download what we do, stream it, or go to iTunes. We're there, too.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another edition of our On Leadership series. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us this fascinating conversation with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the best and most comprehensive cancer care center and centers in the country. Steve is also a member of the Job Creators Network, a sponsor of this show, and the Job Creators Network does remarkable work on the public policy front for small business owners and business owners across this country, and they give those small business owners a real voice. Now let's go to the beginning of Alex's conversation with Steve Bonner. Steve, we also ask everyone about their very first job as a kid. You know, what was the very first one that paid you? What uh, lessons did you learn from it that helped you get to where you are today? Absolutely. And because we had uh, this family with limited means, um, but also with all this competitive fire burning in us, certainly I had a great appetite for better things. And I started working, and I did everything to make a few bucks. I started um, shoveling snow in Minneapolis and mowing lawns and babysitting, um, and then migrated. I uh, cleaned a, a paint factory on Sunday night so that it was clean for the workers to show up to on Monday morning. And uh, I was the youngest paper route runner in Minneapolis that uh, they knew about in history. Um, I convinced a guy who was running the district and couldn't fill this neighborhood to let me have it. So I did the Sunday morning paper delivery at 6 a.m. on snowy, cold uh, winter mornings in Minneapolis, which is lonely and hard and uh, solitary and really developmental. I mean, those things all carry through with me today. Do you remember you were paid for a lot of those jobs, how much an hour? Sure, 10 10 cents an hour for babysitting. (laughs) I remember that, 10 cents an hour. And I would kind of hope that either they wouldn't come home for 10 hours and I'd get a whole (laughs) buck or they'd come home after eight hours and they'd round up and give me a buck, right? And... uh, the newspaper route was an enormous education, and I was too young to do it. I could do the physical part, but um, the whole management of accounts payable in a newspaper route was new learning to me. So the newspaper company gives you the newspapers, and you deliver them, but you owe the newspaper for what they give you, and then you have to go out and collect, door-to-door collect, and make sure you collect enough to be able to pay the newspapers and then what's left is yours. And you go through this cycle of, and I didn't think about it this way, but you're building this account payable to the newspaper, you're delivering, you're collecting. You don't think about it that, you know, Mrs. Jones is never home or she doesn't answer her door, so she now owes you four bucks and you owe the newspaper 380. And uh, if you don't get it from somewhere else, you're dead. And you spend a night collecting and you stop by the drugstore and you buy a candy bar and you see uh, another friend or two and you're a big shot so you buy them a couple candy bars and then you go to pay the newspaper what you owe them and you say, wait a minute, you know, where's the cash? And so was, to me it was my first real look at some of the complexities of simple business economics. Did you have to get customers then for your rounds or were you in charge of an area and you had to recruit customers? Yeah. 
And they could call a number and subscribe, but you also could ring the doorbell and you could leave free newspapers. You know, if you wound up with, say, 75 newspapers and somebody had canceled and they hadn't caught up with it yet, so you only delivered 73, you might deliver the other two to somebody with a little note, you know, I'm here at 5 in the morning, I'd love to deliver your Sunday newspaper, here's my number or whatever, give me a call. Did that teach you a lot about selling? Yeah, you know, I mean, persuasion and customer relationships, the people that were not deadbeats, but they were very, very challenging to collect from, you know, and the relationship management of that. And humor has always been a big part of our lives. That was another big value for my parents was, you know, have fun, find the humor in things, know that stressful times can often be diffused through the use of humor and self-deprecating humor and all that. And so to ring and ring and ring a doorbell and you know they're in there and then they finally come and they're ticked off at you for being so persistent, but you know you got to pay for their newspapers. And so, you know, a little bit of humor or fun can take that out. And So did you crack a joke to them when they got to the door? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't crack a joke, but I might say, you know, it's your friendly newspaper boy again and I'm sorry to keep ringing, um, but whatever. Or, you know, you might see something in their property that you could have some fun yeah. with. It was an expression of who they were and what was important to them. You know, little ways to connect with some twinkle. It's more than just pay your damn bill. So we've heard about Steve's first jobs as a young kid, and a young kid, by the way, who never dreamed of becoming a healthcare executive. What kid does? Until he later met Cancer Treatment Centers of America's founder, Dick Stevenson. One thing I want to ask you about is your joining of uh, becoming the CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. You did something fascinating before accepting the offer. What did you do? So the the context on that was literally three years of back and forth and with this visionary um, innovator who had never scaled a business and who looked at me and said, here comes the big company bureaucrat who's going to overwhelm my good idea with bureaucracy. And I looked at him and I said, so here's a brilliant small-minded innovator who doesn't understand infrastructure, yet I love his vision. Um, And we kept circling back to this, and uh, we did two things on parallel tracks. One, I went to another startup in financial services and joined his board as an advisor, and he hired another CEO and tried to do it with, uh, in my opinion, a sub-optimal leader. Um, And so... These things converged in a couple ways, but I, in the meantime, I got to go and meet with some CTCA patients, and that was a very compelling part of the process. And I met with, I remember a patient who spent the time with me, didn't know who I was, but basically said, you know, this place is special. I've been, I've had cancer, I've been treated, and they said, if it weren't for Cancer Treatment Centers of America, I would be dead today. And just a light went off in my head. I've created jobs, you know, financial security with neat products and all that stuff. I've never saved a life with my career. And that's a little bit arrogant because I can't do it myself. But that just pulled me even harder towards it. And in the meantime, this other CEO was failing. And so my desire and Dick's need and desire just caused us both to get much more creative about how we could structure a win-win, and that coalesced to my joining the company. When Steve became the CEO, things were not exactly going swimmingly there. And so I asked him, where did he decide to start 
for turning things around. If you've got a great idea and you're putting a lot of energy and time and resources into it and it's not behaving the way you want, you start to populate it with more ideas and hope that those will dig you out of what you're trying to do. And so when I came in, uh, the company had lost significant money the year before, didn't have the resources to do that again. So it was kind of the perfect storm. Nobody could defend the old way. We were very committed to the mission, but the business execution of that needed to be re-examined. And so we went through a wonderful process that I had discovered and worked with before of off-site key people What's the core of this? You know, where's the real secret sauce here? And how do we articulate that into a mission and a vision and a set of values? And then let's step back and look at everything that's consuming resources and ask what comes through that filter. And what we found were uh, four different businesses, healthcare businesses, that had been appended onto this as an idea that this might be the magic formula to break out by adding another product or service line or whatever. And as we looked at them, we said, that's strategically irrelevant. And so we sold them, shut them down, and then just focused on building this integrated, holistic, patient-centric delivery of treatment for patients with late-stage complex cancer. You're speaking about it all very calmly, but it's a very dramatic thing to do. You know, it ballsy on your part to shut down these businesses that clearly other people had thought were good ideas. Yeah, but the good news was everybody sat at the table, you know, the key decision makers sat at the table with us and thrashed through this, you know, we'll deal with current reality later, just what is it that's really going to give us a right to be successful? And when we come back, more with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and a member of the Job Creators Network, this is our On Leadership series. More after these messages. Our American Stories. This is our On Leadership series. And today we're focusing on Steve Bonner's story, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And let's go back to Alex and his conversation with Steve. A company's management refocusing in on the mission is crucial. But at the end of the day, they're only a few people. And most of the time, they're not the ones directly interacting with their customers, the patients. And so how do you get all of your people to be driven towards the mission. We recruit very hard, and we created an onboarding process, which began with a recognition that 
every wonderful person that you hire, no matter how carefully you recruit, and the more successful they've been, the even more so, are a cultural terrorist. They've been successful because they've done what they've done. You're hiring because they've been successful, and they're instinctively going to bring what they've worked for them somewhere else. And so you need to have that conversation. And so day one for every employee was a very thoughtful conversation about mission, vision, values, brand promise. This is who we are. This is what we do. Does this work for you? Are you committed to this? And how do we do that? And then there's, a, like, you start on a Monday. There's a day three or five feedback component to that, and there's a day 30. Um, we also didn't guide the first day by saying, well, you're here, welcome, you know, you're going to spend the day with Herb, um, and you say, why with Herb? And the real answer is because Herb doesn't have anything else to do, and the reason he has to do is because he's probably a cultural terrorist too, and so you start with, you know, the most senior person in your chain, you have this opening conversation, and then you spend your time with one of the busiest people because that's who's really going to be relevant. Gosh, Steve's making me nervous. Am I a cultural terrorist in my own company? I'm still here so far. I'm still here so far. Anyways, in addition to their highly intentional recruiting and onboarding process, Cancer Treatment Centers of America created a company-wide bonus pool from part-time janitors all the way up to the founder that encouraged everyone to be aligned with the patient-centered mission. A bonus pool that would be paid out if they, collectively, as a team, hit fully laid out key goals. The structure was in place when I came. It had never paid out. Um, and then the first, you know, the, let's see, we went through a cleanup period and then we started to gain traction. And I think the third year I was there, we went positive in the pool and paid out like a quarter of a percent to everybody. But it was, holy cow, you know, all these years this is really paying out. And we got up to 14%, 15% of base pay. Wow. Imagine getting a bonus of 15% of your salary. Woo! But inevitably, for some folks, a noble mission and generous incentives aren't enough to align themselves with the team. And you have to cut the cord. So how did Steve Bonner handle that as CEO? When it comes to termination, to do it in a way that is mutually respectful and in my opinion a termination is more about the people who stay than it is about the people who go and the culture needs to see that even though you've come to the conclusion that this person needs to leave it's with respect that is fascinating even though you're treating the people leaving with respect because it's the right thing to do steve's saying that it's actually more about the people who stay and showing them how much you respect your people. I next asked Steve a question we ask every guest. Steve, so talk about uh, is there a passion or a quirk or a hobby that folks wouldn't expect from you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what people expect, right? Um, I think one of the more amusing things that I get is uh, wander around my neighborhood and people can't see on the radio, but... I'm 6'2 and 205 pounds, and I'm following these two little 12-pound poodles at the end of a string, you know, leading me down the road. And, you know, here I am in my own mind, a successful multi-billion dollar company CEO, and uh, I'm just following these two little mindless, lovable poodles around. That surprises people. Does it just feel ridiculous? 
And it feels sweet to me. I I'm mean, I, yeah, exactly. And you know, where they take me may be the same, and it may be different. And they have their little interactions too. So, it's another exercise in leadership. Always be leading. It sure is better than always be closing. And when you have kids like Steve does, you are always leading, and it always isn't so clear cut. Talk about on the other side of it now as a parent, and especially you know, as a financially successful parent. How do you? You know, pass your values on to your kids, which can be a tricky thing to do. Yeah, it's a very tricky thing to do. And the thing that jumps into my mind is that the most important job we all have and the one that we get absolutely no training for is being a parent. <laughs> and if you ask me where there are things I would do differently and could have done better, it would have been along that spectrum of... Uh, raising and teaching my own kids. And it wasn't that I wasn't available. It was that I'm a workaholic, you know, and it was that uh, while I got to sporting events and all that stuff, I probably wasn't as available. When you talk about how much our patients travel, you know, how much I traveled, and I loved every minute of it. But looking back, you know, there's some things that I certainly could do better with them. But I think the important things that get harder when you have more financial resources are to, you know, empower your kids to make their own mistakes and to have to find their own way. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to, very easy to make sure that the tuition is paid and that the clothes are there and that travel is done and athletic support is there and so forth. And I just know how much more effective I am as a person because I learned. Uh, and this is a favorite phrase of the owner of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. I learned that scarcity is your friend. It's true. When you want something you don't have and you don't have the resources to get it, to see how that engages creativity and the hard work and the competitiveness and the humor and the beguile and all that stuff is really spectacular. Mm-hmm. And I think that unintentionally some of that erodes in the environment we create for our kids as we start to achieve the things that we've always wanted you know that's the irony is you know this is all what we wanted for ourselves and we want to share that and we want to be generous with it and if we don't do it right we wind up taking some of these experiences out and deprive our kids of some of those tools that at least for me have been so important to my own progress yeah amen wow Steve's honest self-reflection there is quite an example for us all. And he's spot on that raising kids is one of the most important things in our lives. And yet it's one of the things that we receive the least training for. Same with marriage. As my colleague Stan jokes, as my single colleague Stan jokes, do your kids and wife come with instruction manuals? Only if so. Only if so, my friend. That's Steve Bonner, ladies and gents, and I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that, as always, Alex. And, and what, a, what a treat it is to just hear from these folks and hear from them about their personal lives, their failings, because you can tell. I mean, he, he has some regrets about some of the time he spent and where he spent it. Um, and I don't know many people who don't look back and say, hey, I could have done a thing or two differently. I'm, I'm always uh, a little bit uh, off-put by anybody who says, I didn't do anything wrong and I, I wouldn't do anything different. I go, oh, okay, nice talking with you. And by the way, just on a side note here, um, you, you had this great founder and a dynamic founder, and then you had a, a CEO who helped uh, 
propel and grow cancer treatment centers of America 30 times its size when he got there. And this is what happens when you have a great founder, a great CEO, a great team. Everybody's on the same page. And Cancer Treatment Centers of America, one of the great, great uh, medical centers and treatment centers in the country uh, because they're focused around a, a mission and value statement that they execute on. And my goodness, we can all learn how to do that in our daily lives. And by the way, these things also happen in our story on Home Depot. Uh, yeah, the visionary founder, Bernie Marcus, he was really like the chief salesman. But as we learned when we did our hour on Home Depot, Arthur Blank was the guy who kept the train on the tracks and would sometimes say, Bernie, no, stop selling. And Langone, Ken Langone, he was out there getting the money. You need a team. And we learned that here on Our American Stories, that leaders know how to lead, but they also know how to follow. This is Lee Habib, Steve Bonner, on leadership, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and over the last few decades, instrumental music has all but disappeared from pop culture. But why? Our own Jesse Edwards, who loves music, shares some ideas on what might have happened to bring about this change. Four point one five. That was the percentage of sales shared by the jazz and classical music genres combined in the United States in 2012. This includes legends in pop culture like Louis Armstrong, Leonard Bernstein, current artists working within them like Diana Krall or Josh Bell, and those who make most of us cringe like Kenny G. But why is it? Why is it that the two genres of music that take the most training, practice, and patience in order for the artist to perfect and be able to competently perform hold such a modicum amount of sales in the United States market, even despite the fact that these two genres are regarded highly enough by our culture to be taught at every school with a music department and are considered forms of fine art? I'm not specifically talking about jazz or classical. I point them out because they consist of what it is that I'm referring to. Instrumental music. Think about it. What was the last instrumental song that went to number one on the U.S. pop charts? How about the top 20 or top 40 for that matter? In the 1930s and 40s, arguably the very beginning of American pop culture music, instrumental was the norm, and many of the great pieces of pop music from that period were instrumental. Benny Goodman's Sing 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 or Duke Ellington's Take the A-Train, Glenn Miller's In the Mood. Ironically, all of those song titles do have lyrics written for them, but it's the instrumental versions that are best remembered. Fast forward the clock to the 1960s and instrumental music was still commonplace. 103 instrumentals cracked the Billboard Top 20, nine of which went number one. In the 1970s, there was a bit of a change. Many pop rock groups were no longer doing purely instrumental works, but were having featured instrumental sections like guitar and keyboard solos. Many times these instrumental sections were found at the end of a song, allowing for improvisational solos at live concerts. During that decade, only 45 instrumentals reached the top 20 status on the Billboard pop chart. But roughly half of these had success directly due to a movie television connection or were arrangements of previously familiar material. 
Beethoven literally went number one in America in September of 1976, nearly 150 years after he died in Europe, all because a remixed version of this classic was featured on the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. The 1980s and 90s saw a continuation of what was established in the 70s, only to a lesser extent, with artists vying for MTV airplay the focus fell more on image and less about the performance. As such, the majority of instrumental music that found its way to the mainstream was originally written for movies and television. Today, instrumental music has become all but extinct in the realm of popular music. And by popular music, I'm referring to any new music that's being played on commercial radio or marketed in a very similar fashion. The proof here being that no instrumental has reached the top 20 since Kenny G's Olding Zine Millennium Remix in 1999. No! No! For those of you keeping track, the last instrumental work to attain the top spot on the pop charts is keyboardist Jan Hammer's Miami Vice theme from 1985. The last one to the top of the pops not originally written for movies or television was a song called Rise by Herb Alpert in 1979. But the piece did receive plenty of television help to attain the number one spot. The last instrumental without the assistance of visual media to go number one was arguably 1975's The Hustle by Van McCoy and the Soul Symphony. Do the hustle. Do the hustle. I say arguably because the song is predominantly instrumental. It does include vocals with tangible words. Otherwise, the honor goes to the 1973 Barry White composition called Love's Theme. So what is it about instrumental music that people are no longer able to understand or appreciate? Perhaps the answer is that in the last few generations, people have become less and less musically inclined and every corner of our pop culture seems to exacerbate the diminishing of the typical appreciation and knowledge of music as art. This goes beyond the slashing of public school budgets where typically music and art are the first things to go. Looking back, my grandpa talked about the days in his youth when just about everybody competently played at least one instrument. And when artists came to town, they found local players to be the backing band. But my grandfather's generation is basically the first to live their entire lives with easy and immediate access to music due to the inventions of radio and records. Yet, it was still expected for a child to learn an instrument. Before these inventions, if you wanted to hear music, you had to perform it yourself or go to the symphony, or find someone playing on the front porch, at the barber shop, or in the local tavern. Now, at the flip of a switch, we all have immediate access to high-quality music. One effect of having immediate access to music is that less and less people learn how to play an instrument simply because it's no longer necessary to play in order to have access to music. With having less and less people playing, the quality of those who do play also gets diminished because the talent pool becomes smaller. Basically, with less people playing any musical instruments, there's less understanding of music because there are many people finding no purpose in learning anything about the art. With this lack of musical knowledge, our ears have basically become lazier and lazier. How many people realize that John Mellencamp's R.O.C.K. in the USA, John Cafferty's On the Dark Side, and What I Like About You by the Romantics are basically all the same song? Hey! To this end, if we put different words to any given tune, for many, it becomes an entirely new song. 
In music, groups that want to make it big target the United States, and foreign groups have lyrics written in English and sing them with American accents. Perhaps most notable of these English as a second language groups are ABBA and Scorpions. Even native English speakers use a similar approach to broaden their marketability. The Beatles, U2, and Adele have all recorded with American accents on their songs that became popular hits in the United States. How many of us commonly listen to music in a language that we don't understand? What you'll find is that the vocalist becomes another instrument, and that what matters most in the song are the elements that make the music musical and artistic. Des yeux qui font baisser les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche. Voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. You wind up listening to instrumental music. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, qu'il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rose. This means that most non-English speakers grow up listening to a lot of instrumental music, which explains why jazz and classical music and the musicians who perform them have a greater share of the markets and have more readily available performances and more lucrative ones at that in Europe, Asia, and South America than they do in the United States. Thanks to the advent of MTV, music has become more and more about the visual. It's become more important to have a great video than great music. The concert experience no longer is dependent upon the musician's ability to interpret the songs selected for a performance, but are loaded with light shows, pyrotechnics, and dancers. We're at a point where music without visual appeal cannot command the attention of an audience. Music has become the background element, a side dish served with the main course. Think about it. Many people listen to music while working, exercising, driving a vehicle, playing a game, cooking, writing, talking, whatever. Yes, the music is present, but it isn't the focus of attention. It's a backdrop, an accompaniment to something else. Which is the difference between hearing music and listening to it. When actually listening to music is where 100% of your attention lies without any outside distractions taking you away from the musical experience. At the end of a listening session, you should be mentally exhausted because of your focused attention on every nuance throughout the duration of Beethoven's Fifth or Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Visual dominance or outside distractions are not the only problems. The larger problem is the dominance of thought. Take the time to go to a modern art exhibit or museum and take note of how often you find yourself thinking, I could have done this, or that looks like something a third grader did, or... Why is this even in a museum in the first place? Most people are unable or unwilling to let the abstraction affect their emotions directly. The experience must be filtered through interpretation. In many ways, it's a crutch that we all use to deal with fears that state, I don't understand this, and if I admit that I don't understand this, I look unsophisticated, ignorant, and stupid. These types of fears fill the mind with noise and the audience member is unable to see, hear, taste, feel, dare I say, unable to understand and appreciate the art presented before them. The same thing happens with instrumental music. Suddenly, without any lyrics, there's nothing for the mind to latch onto and the projection of emotional values becomes more difficult. However, as soon as there are lyrics speaking of love, hate, loneliness, or whatever, the listener's emotions are easily tapped. The listener no longer has to interpret the music being performed by the artist. Regardless of the medium, fine art is more demanding for both the artist and the audience than pop art will ever be. 
The lack of musical substance becomes clearly visible. Many songs use just a few chords, have a melody line that doesn't change much, and there isn't a wide variety of dynamics, density, texture, or timbre in much of what's popular. We certainly could argue that pop music shows the prowess of the recording engineer. If we're to reverse this trend, we need to make a conscious effort in promoting the abstract aspects of music. This problem extends far beyond a disinterest for jazz and classical music. It's a problem for high-quality music in general. The dominance of words and visuals has led many to believe that listening to rap or watching music videos is the full extent of what music has to offer. If this continues, they will be missing out on a huge part of what not just music and art, but life has to offer. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs>